we are now going to transition into a time of reading scripture. So if you are able, please stand with me. We stand out of respect of God's word as a reminder that we stand under under the authority of scripture. Um, And today we are going to be reading from Hosea 1, 2 through 9. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomor, the daughter of Deblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jew for the blood of Jezreel, I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived and and again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will have no more. I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your Lord, your God. This is God's word. It is true and is given out of his love. You may be seated. Amen. Um, I think I might be muted. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. That's a, that's a fun passage to start off church with. I just want to make sure everyone's awake, right? If you hear the word whoredom, it kind of makes you perk up a little bit in church and be like, man, the Old Testament is a lot more interesting than I thought it was when we used to do the, through the Bible in the year thing. But uh, yeah, so that, that passage, the reason that's important to read this morning is because it's such a powerful, uh, impactful story and metaphor in the Old Testament. It's from the, the book of Hosea. The, the, the first few verses, verses there show a picture of, of how God's commitment to his people Israel is so strong. He uses the metaphor of a husband who loves his wife. And so that, that image of God as the husband of Israel, uh, Jesus as the husband of the New Testament church, it's a very powerful metaphor that the the whole Bible continues to use. But what that story in Hosea shows us is that when Israel sinned, when they uh, started worshiping other gods and going to after other idols instead of worshiping him as he had uh, told them to uh, in the Old Testament, uh, God uses this metaphor of it's like a wife who strays into whoredom. And instead of uh, being faithful to her husband, she has now whored herself out after these other gods. And so like, it's, like I said, it's a really abrasive, jarring metaphor to use. But what God is trying to show the nation of Israel is that when when we are unfaithful to him, it is the exact same kind of experience as a spouse who is unfaithful to her husband. And so, so uh, if you look at that, just think about the, the emotion that Hosea must have been going through in that story to have his wife continually leave him. Because even the, um, the, the last two out of his three kids, it's, it's really unclear whether those are his children or not. It seems to indicate that they're probably uh, the offspring of her uh, um, abandoning of the marriage covenant. And so when you read that story, it really grabs your attention because of the significance significance of, of marital intimacy and how important that fidelity is in a marriage. And what God wants us to see in that story is, is we are not Hosea. We are Gomer. Okay, we are not the one who is being left. We are the person who is leaving our first love, who is leaving God when we go after other deities, when we worship other things. And so, so the reason this is important as we're studying through the book of First Peter is because Peter makes a big deal out of the fact that we are God's chosen people. 
And, and if you think about the image of, of in the ancient world of a husband choosing a bride and setting his love on her and promising to care for her and provide for her and, and that she would be a part of his household, that's the same kind of metaphor that Peter wants us to see in this New Testament, that, that God has chosen the church to be his people, that we are the bride of Christ. And because of that, our fidelity to Jesus, our faithfulness to Jesus is so significant that when we turn after other gods, after other idols, when we turn and we make our life built around the idea of accumulation, accumulating wealth or accumulating power or accumulating prestige and approval or, or just make ourselves the center of our own little universe. That kind of idolatry that we have is the same kind of picture as what Hosea shows us when his wife, Gomer, strayed into this uh, uh, prostitution and, and not living faithful to her covenant. And so, so that, that is like, it's a, it's a heavy, it's a significant metaphor. The thing that we need to see this morning is that's the kind of intensity with which God loves us and God pursues us. That's the kind of desire that God has over his church for us to be a faithful, holy people who are devoted to him. The, 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 The stakes for what it means for us to model the bride of Christ and to be the people of God are super significant. And so as we study through the book of 1 Peter this morning, we're gonna see that that same kind of Old Testament passion that God has for his bride is the same kind of New Testament love and commitment that God has to us as his people. So let's say a word of prayer and then we're gonna jump into the book of 1 Peter. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your word for us and how when we open it and read these uh, verses and these pages that it's not just uh, ink on a page, but it is the living and active word of your Holy Spirit. And so I pray that as we study these, that these words would change us, that we would uh, humble ourselves before you, that we would be humble under the teaching of your word so that we could uh, be impacted in the way that you have called us to be so that we could leave this place more in love with you than when we came. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So we are working our way uh, verse at a time through the book of 1 Peter. So if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Peter. If you don't, on the table Bibles, it's page 1014. I think it's always so important to have it open in front of you. So as we work through, we're going to be referring back to chapter 1 some, looking ahead to chapter 3 some. But it's the idea we're, we're going to mostly be in uh, 1 Peter chapter one, uh, or chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So if you're uh, new here or just if you've been coming, just as a reminder of the context of where we're at, Peter is writing this letter to a group of churches in the first century, and he addresses it to the elect exiles of the dispersion. And and that that phrase, the elect exiles, is very important for understanding the whole book of 1 Peter. He's saying that you are elect, you are chosen, you are loved by God. God has set his care on you because he chose you and loved you. But then he says you're not just elect, you're elect exiles. So so you you are homeless, like you are chosen, but you're not currently living in your homeland. You're like someone who is living far away from the country of their birth or the country of their citizenship. And so because of that, if we are elect, if we are loved, but we are homeless, we are ex- living in exile, then we should expect a degree of suffering, a degree of, of tension, a degree of not fitting in with the world around us because we're not living uh, in our home, but rather we are made for a future country, a future home, uh, the kingdom of heaven that we will have when Jesus returns. And so what Peter does is he's trying to situate his people, the audience, within this historical framework, saying that because you are the elect exiles, you can look back in the past and you can see that Jesus rose from the dead. And if the resurrection of Jesus happened after he died for our sins, then that changes everything about the nature of the universe. He wants them to look back to the resurrection and see that they also can look forward to the second coming of Christ. And so there's this idea of Jesus rose from the dead, and when he returns at the end of time, you will receive an inheritance, this blessed uh, reward for following Jesus. You will be in the presence of God for all of eternity. And what he's doing is connecting these two points and saying between the resurrection of Jesus and our future inheritance is where we find ourselves 
today. And if that's where we find ourselves today on this timeline of human history, we can have hope. We can have a confident expectation for what is going to come in the future. We can look at our inheritance that's coming, and that can give us strength to live faithfully today. And so what Peter had spent most of chapter 1 doing is describing the amazing, gracious, saving work of Jesus. That, that, that we are saved, we are made whole, we are given a new identity in Christ, not because of anything we have done, but because of everything that Jesus has done in our place. And so if we are saved by the gracious love of God and not by any effort of our own, then that changes everything about how we live out the Christian life. And so after describing how we were saved, he then gave us a few commands last week that we studied, these three imperatives or these three commands. He says, because Jesus has saved you, you should set your hope on the future that you have with Jesus. He said, you should pursue holiness and live in a way that honors God, and you should love one another earnestly and deeply. And so those three things, set your hope, be holy, and love earnestly, those things all should flow through us as followers of Jesus because Jesus has already saved us. Not because we are trying to earn God's love by being good people, but because Jesus loved us enough to die for us, we live out of the confidence that he gives us because we are his people and uh, we are his, the bride of Christ. And so we're going to keep, keep going now in chapter 2. We're going to open it up to chapter 2, verses uh, 1 through 3 to get started here. So read with me chapters uh, 2, verses 1. It says, in light of all these things, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And so, so he's giving us our individual responsibility because of what Jesus has done. So in light of those things, put away all of these sins. And so this is now the fourth command that we're seeing in this book of First Peter. And, and it's kind of an extension of the third command to love earnestly. So Peter's saying the way that we love one another earnestly is to begin by not being unloving. Okay, the best way to love someone is to avoid being unloving towards that person. And so he lists five sins. These are, these are five community-destroying sins. And he says that we are to take those things off. We're to put them off. And it's actually the same word that you would use for taking off dirty clothes. He's saying like the, these community-destroying sins that we struggle with are something like an old garment that we should take off and burn in the fire and throw away and never get involved in it again. So these sins are the sin of malice, which is just another way of saying evil or ill intent towards someone. Uh, deceit, any kind of falsehood that you would have when you present either yourself or your words. Uh, hypocrisy is another kind of falsehood. It's, a, it's particularly a false righteousness of presenting an image of yourself that is holier than you really are. It's not really who you are uh, underneath that hypocrisy. The fourth one is envy. So it's when you're jealous of someone or, or when someone has something good happen to them, you get upset instead of being joyful that they have had something good happen. And the last one is slander. And that's just any speech that harms another other person, their reputation, or their image in front of other people. And so again, you look through those five things, and you see those are five things that would make any environment you're a part of a terrible place to be. Okay, if, if we are the church, if we are the people of God, then the kind of culture that we have as a church is incredibly significant. Okay, we want to be a place that preaches the gospel, that we're so clear that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus, but we also want our interactions with one another to model that same gospel. We, we want gospel doctrine and gospel culture in our church. And so what Peter is saying is that these five things would devastate the culture of any church. Who, who would want to invite their friends into a place where there's maliciousness and slander and envy and deceit and hypocrisy and all those kinds of things? But then you look at those five sins 
and you look at the American church and you're like, man, it's, sometimes it feels like we're kind of going 0 for 5 on these things. It feels like we're really struggling. But then you evaluate your own heart and you say, man, it really feels like there's sometimes that I go 0 for 5 with these things. And, and I think with these community-destroying sins, we all have different struggles that start from a heart level. And so um, none of us are exempt from these things because our heart left to itself is evil and deceitful and wicked and it pushes us towards all these kinds of sins. We have to say that unless we have been given a new heart by Jesus, this will be the inevitable result of all of us. And even after we've been given a new heart, there's some times where that old flesh, that old way of life still seems to have a pull on us. And so we can look at this and see that we all are going to struggle with these in different ways. I think some of them more uh, c- come to each of us in different kinds of ways. So, for example, I don't really struggle with envy towards, like, celebrities or rich people. But I struggle with envy towards my friends, people that have better vacations than I do or a little bit nicer house than I have or something like that. People that are close to me is the ones that I struggle with envy. But then slander, I don't really struggle with slandering my friends, but, but I have no problem talking crap about celebrities or athletes or anything like that. I could, if you want to hear what I think about LeBron James, I would gladly tell you what I think about him. And it's like that, that's still a community-destroying sin. Whether I mean, he is not a part of our community. Uh, if he was, I wish he would tie. That would help us with the building campaign, I'm sure. <laughs> But the idea that um, how we speak towards other people made in the image of God matters. Okay, and whether they're in our community or not, these types of sins should not in any way be connected to us. We, we have an individual responsibility to take off these community-destroying sins. And, and I love how Peter tells us to do this. He doesn't just say, try really hard to do this. He gives us something better to replace these sins with instead. He says in verse 2, so long, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. The way we avoid deceit and slander and hypocrisy and those things isn't by trying hard not to do that. It's by longing for the spiritual milk that comes from God that our souls can grow up into salvation. And this metaphor of spiritual milk is so important because it's something that is essential for a newborn. Like, I think about how a newborn longs for milk. They, they, they are desperate for it. It's continual. They can't go more than a few hours without needing it to be, uh, needing to eat again. Otherwise, they, they are going to die. It's this only source of life-giving nutrition, right? And a lot of you, you uh, uh, mothers of newborns know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, but the reason this is important in the first century is because this is written 1,800 years before formula was invented. So when Peter is writing this, he's not saying, hey, make sure you get some nourishment. He's saying approach God, approach Jesus as the only source of the life-giving nourishment that your soul needs. In the first century, there was no substitute for a mother's milk. And in the same way, there is no substitute for our souls feasting on and enjoying Jesus and being nourished by Jesus when we come to him. So, so one of the things that's important to note here, in uh, the book of Hebrews and in the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul and the author of Hebrews use the idea of milk in a negative connotation. They're saying, you're still on milk, you should have advanced on to meat by now. But, but that's not the way Peter is using this. He's saying that just like a newborn infant desires milk and can only eat milk and that is all that they need for life and nourishment, that's the same kind of heart posture that every single one of us as Christians have. We need to always be so dependent on Jesus that we never outgrow this need to come back to him, to have our longings shaped by him, to have our hearts drawn to him, knowing that that's the only place where we can find the life that our souls are longing for. 
Okay, and so if we're that desperate for it, if we're that, if, if the nourishment that comes from Jesus is that essential for our souls, then we can go to verse 3 and say that is the picture of our lives, that we have tasted that the Lord is good. I love that image of tasting that the Lord is good. He's pairing off of that image of, of longing for Jesus, just like you long for spiritual milk. And, and what, what he's saying here is he's quoting uh, Psalm 34. It's, a, it's an old uh, psalm that uh, David wrote. And he's saying that that concept of, of tasting the goodness of God is what shapes our longings and our desires. So when we come to Jesus, a lot of times it's like, I don't really want to do the things that I know God wants me to do. I'd rather hang out over here. And, and what Peter is saying is the more that you taste the goodness of God, the more that changes your longings so that you desire to taste the goodness of God, which creates more of a desire or longing for the goodness of God. And it's this, this building off of our, uh, the desires of God that our souls have. And, that, and that's how uh, physical taste works too, right? If you think about it, the more you eat a particular kind of food, the more you long for that kind of food. So, so when, I, when Kelly and I first got married, I had the most, I, I, like if you take a, take a four-year-old and their taste palette and my taste palette, that's pretty much the same thing. Like my lunch was a cosmic brownie and a totino. Totino's pizza every day. Like, do you guys remember Totino's? I was literally, I was driving to work one day and I heard it on the radio that there was a recall on Totino's microwavable pizzas because everyone was getting salmonella. And I was like, well, I hope this works out okay. I'm going to go ahead and eat it anyway. That's how, that's how bad my tastes were. But now that we've been married for 16 years, I can't even imagine eating those kinds of things. Like the things that I, like, I actually desire green beans. Like, can you imagine how crazy that is if to my 18-year-old self, if you had told me that one day I would long for green beans? But the more you eat healthy things, the more your taste buds desire healthy things. And so what Peter is telling us, the more we taste the goodness of God, the more our hearts will long for more of that goodness of God. And, and the image of tasting that the Lord is good is such a powerful metaphor. Think about, like, you can hear something, you, you can see something, you can touch something, but, but only tasting something actually does it become a part of you. Like, it, it's a whole nother level of engaging something. It's the only sense that we have that it actually becomes a part of us. And, and Peter's saying that's the same kind of drive we have to have to experience more and more of the life-giving nourishment that comes from Jesus. And there's no substitute for that. So, so as we evaluate our lives as Christians, if you're a follower of Christ and say, you know, when is it that I have tasted the goodness of God? Like, like look back on your life and see when those powerful moments have come. I, I think for me, uh, there was a moment a few years ago where I was on a walk reading Psalm 118 and thinking about like meditating on this Psalm as I was out in nature. It was like the most incredible tasting of the goodness of God that I've ever experienced. Right, there's other times where like, I, you hear a good song, like a song that points you to the glory of God somehow. And it's like so songs connect to our souls in such a deeper level than a lot of other things do. And a lot of times you can be worshiping God through song and it, it's like you're tasting God's goodness in a way that you can't otherwise. Or, or sometimes like in community. So Kelly and I had the chance to go away for our anniversary last year uh, and, and spending several days together was really good for our marriage. But our souls came back more refreshed and more full of the love of Jesus because fellowshipping together had increased our awareness of and our longings for and our tasting of the goodness of God. And, and there's, there's, we all have stories like that. If you are a follower of Jesus, you can say, these are the moments that I've tasted the goodness of God. And so then our desires are shaped by those moments of tasting God's goodness. So, so then when we talk about spiritual disciplines or the means of grace, like, like when we ask someone, like, do you read the Bible daily? What's your prayer life look like? Those are not religious duties to perform in order to make sure you're a good Christian who's trying your best. Those are things that you are giving your soul the opportunity to taste the goodness of God. 
And the more you do that, even on the days that you don't want to eat your green beans, the more you do that, the more you start to have your longings and your tastes shaped by the healthy things that you're doing. And so, so then you think about how we do this as a community. Every single week when we gather, we literally taste the goodness of God when we come to the communion table. Right, like the, the, the body of Christ broken for us, the blood of Christ shed for us. I think it's such a significant sacrament that we actually get to imbibe and drink in and eat in those things as a reminder of how good God really is. And so when you do those things, that's different ways. It always should come back to scripture, right? Prayer should always be a part of it. But no matter which aspect of your coming at it, the more you do those things, the more your hearts will be shaped by that concept of tasting the goodness of God. So in light of that, if that's our individual responsibility, if we're doing those things, look to how that fleshes itself out in our corporate identity. Look at verse four and following. As you come to him, as you come to Jesus, a living stone Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And so, so Peter's describing our, our identity as followers of Christ. If you have put your faith and trust in Jesus, your identity has been transformed. And now you can come to Jesus, the living stone, as a member of his body, as yourself a living stone. And what, what he's using the metaphor of here is this idea of a temple and the priests. And so the, in the Old Testament, the priests had this unique privilege and weighty responsibility of being the representatives of Israel who were allowed to go into the temple and encounter and experience the presence of God in a way that the rest of the nation couldn't. And what, what Peter is saying is because Jesus has risen again, he is the living stone. Okay? He, has, he died and has been resurrected. And because of that, he has given us new birth, new, new life, regeneration. And because of that, we are now, like Jesus, ourselves living stones. And we can come to him. We don't have, we are, we, this is the idea where we get the idea of uh, the priesthood of all believers. That I do not have any extra access to God that anyone else in our church does. You do not need a priest to mediate between you and your sins and God himself because we are all living stones, a part of the temple of God ourselves, and we can have access to Jesus through his blood. We are now a part of the same spiritual household that he has given us. And, and so it's this, it's this image of this, this building project that God has. It's this divine living cathedral that is built together brick by brick by one living stone at a time being placed on top of another into this glorious cathedral that is going to show people the glory of who Jesus is. And, and so what that means for us is, is a lot, several different things. One of them is the importance of unity. He doesn't say you're being built into several different kinds of living houses. He doesn't say that you're a stone and you can go be off on a hill or a mountainside by yourself and enjoy your private, quiet time with God. He says that you are collectively the household of God that is being built up into this living cathedral. And the, the purpose of a temple, the purpose of a cathedral is to show the surrounding people the glory of the deity that is being worshipped. So, so think about the, the weightiness of that responsibility for us as a church. The way that we treat each other, the, the gospel culture that we try to cultivate in our church will show the people who come in here the type of God that we are worshiping. And, and so if we're a place that is, is characterized by deceit and slander and hypocrisy and maliciousness and all those kinds of things, what is the image we are showing of God? 
But if we are a place that is characterized by earnest love for one another, by a pursuit of holiness and living in a way that honors God, that will show everyone a much different picture of the kind of God we worship. And so that's why unity matters. Because if you are a follower of Christ that lives here or in Colorado Springs or goes to a different church in Falcon, or if you're a follower of Christ who died 100 years ago, we are all part of the same edifice that's being built up. It's this image of a cathedral being constructed. And so because of that, um, I actually have a picture of the uh, Notre Dame, the cathedral in Paris. And this is after the fire that took place a few years ago. And so if you think about this image, there's, a, there's uh, the, the scaffolding all around the cathedral. You can tell that there's something going on back there that is probably going to be glorious and beautiful and magnificent and all those things. But right now what you see is this work in progress taking place. Right? And that is a picture of what the church is right now. The scaffolding of God building his temple is still around us. We are still in the process of being built up into this holy house, this living temple that points people to the glory of Jesus. But there's this promise that our future inheritance awaits us. Peter mentions this idea of inheritance so many times. And what, what he's pointing us to is that this living temple that we are, this household of God that we are being built into. I think about that image. Like you are being built into the house of God. It's an ongoing process. Eventually, the scaffolding of human history will be removed. And what will be left is this beautiful, glorious cathedral that points people to the glory of who God is. I think we have another picture of what Notre Dame looks like without the scaffolding around it. And so you think of like right now, we are, we are a little bit of a mess, right? Like we, we all kind of struggle with envy at times. We all struggle with slander at times. We all, we all struggle to live out the identity that God has created for us. But what there is this promise in this passage is that God will continue this building project until we attain the completion of the work that he began in us. And if that's the case, we can have great confidence. If God is the architect, if God is the builder, then that means all who come to him will one day experience the beautiful recreation that God is doing in our midst. And so that's the invitation for everyone is to come to him as the living stone. He makes us into part of his household and we can follow him and, and glorify him with our lives. But that invitation is not something that everyone experiences. Some people will choose to reject the invitation from God. Look at verses seven and eight. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone in a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And so what, what Peter is doing is saying that there, there's two kinds of people in the world and there's only two kinds of people. There's those who have come to Jesus, who have submitted themselves to him, who have, have relied on his grace and mercy and have come in faith, and they have now been transformed into part of this building project. They are living stones with a new identity. But there's another kind of person. There's a person who hears the invitation, but instead of coming to Jesus in faith, they stumble over him because they reject him as the stone that the builders rejected. And what he's doing with that passages, he's quoting uh, from Psalm 118. It's this famous passage in the Psalms where, where David says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And that passage in Psalm 118, Jesus quotes to describe himself in all three of the synoptic gospels. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he uses that same verse that Peter uses here and says, the world is rejecting me, but I am actually the cornerstone. I am the most important piece of the temple that everything else will be built upon. And so he's speaking to, when Jesus, when he says that, he's speaking to the religious leaders, the people that are in charge of the physical temple who are looking at Jesus and saying, there's nothing in you that we would want to have in our temple, so we're going to reject you. And, and what they're doing is fulfilling that prophecy that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
Okay, and so when, when the world looks at Jesus, when the world looks at Jesus' church, they say there is nothing in there that we would want to emulate. It's, it's humility instead of power. Uh, it's poverty instead of wealth. It, it's, it's self-sacrifice instead of self-fulfillment. None of those things sound appealing to the world if you're using the world's standards. But what Peter's reminding us is of the exact same thing Jesus reminded us of, which is what David prophesied in Psalm 118, that the world has the wrong metrics. The world looks at the, sto- the cornerstone of Jesus and says, there's nothing worth building on there. But all who come to Jesus in faith see that that is the only foundation that our lives could actually be built on. And I, and I love this image of stumbling. It says that the, the, the laying a cornerstone um, and the, the builders rejected have become, uh, the, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Like, think about like when you go to a, on a hike in the mountains, right? So there's, there's a trail there and you're, you're looking at all the beautiful scenery and there's, inevitably there's always a couple times it happens where there's a rock in the trail and your toe will stub it and the stone is actually huge and goes way under the dirt. And so the stone is immovable, but your toe is very movable, right? Like you, the stone is unbreakable, but your toe, was very breakable. And so because of that, you end up tripping over the stone because it will not move. And because of that, you end up falling because of that. That's what Peter is saying, Jesus here. Jesus is unbreakable. He is immovable. And if you come to him and try to reject him, if you don't understand who he is and worship him in his, his deity, then you're going to stumble over it just as if you tripped over a stone. And so the question for us then is, have we actually encountered the real Jesus? And if, the, if your version of Jesus has never caused you to stumble or trip in any way, you've probably remade Jesus in your own image. If, if Jesus agrees with everything that you think and want to believe, then you probably have remade Jesus to agree with all of your own opinions in the first place. There is this moment where we encounter God as he really is, and because we are sinful, we have to humble ourselves and repent and realize that he is the standard of truth and excellence, and we are not. Okay, there's this moment of challenge that we all have to have. One, a pastor named Juan Sanchez says it this way. He says, Jesus is an offensive, divisive figure who demands total allegiance. He is the cornerstone or he is nothing. He is not willing to be just one brick in our own building. He calls us to be built into his. And to everyone who hears that, it is either the most wonderful news or the most offensive. And so again, yeah, if Jesus has never offended you, have you ever met the genuine Jesus? And so, so that, that brings some challenges for us as Christians. When we go on mission, when we try to share Jesus with our neighbors and friends and coworkers, we have to ask, are we leaving Jesus in all of his glory and offensiveness? Or are we trying to round some of those corners and hope that our neighbors won't stumble over the picture of Jesus that is actually in the Bible? Do you ever feel the need to make Jesus more acceptable, like to kind of update him for the 21st century, to to leave some of those doctrines aside because they won't really play well in Falcon or Colorado Springs? Whenever we do that, what we're doing is we are trying to change the presentation of the gospel to make Jesus not offensive and not a stumbling block. And what we're doing is we're actually not worshiping the real Jesus when we do that. But there's also this question of uh, when people stumble, are they stumbling over Jesus or are they stumbling over our own sin and failures? Right? Like, is it our hypocrisy that makes people turn away from Jesus? Or is it Jesus and all of his love and truth? So that, that's why this idea of being holy in a, in a, uh, as a, the people of God is such an important thing for us. But the promise with this is that though the world rejects Jesus and says he is not worth building on, for those who come to Jesus in faith, it says that we are given honor and we will never be put to shame. 
So, so both of those words are important in our day. Like so, um, but in the ancient world, in the Greek world, there was an honor-shame society. So, so, so we live in a, a guilt-innocence society. Either it's my fault or it's your fault. Someone's got to be wrong. But in the ancient world, it was either did you have honor or had you lost your honor and were you full of shame? And so the risk of being a part of the church in the first century is if you were rejected, if they said you are no longer welcome in our society where we don't believe that what you're doing is good for the Roman Empire, you were rejected, which would by itself be a source of shame. Okay, and so guilt is I did something wrong. Shame is I am wrong. It's a deeper part of our hearts that wrestles with that. And so what's happening here is Peter is saying, even though it may feel like the world is telling you that you are full of shame and you have no honor, it's actually at the end of time we will see that it's those who come to Jesus in faith who have been built into this living temple. That is the greatest honor that we could ever have as a, as a human being because we were created for that exact pers- purpose to worship Jesus. And so if you think about these ideas of honor and shame and stumbling and coming to Jesus in faith, and then you evaluate your own heart and your own tendencies, you have to say honestly, there is nothing in me that deserves any of this. Like left to myself, I should stumble over Jesus every time. Left to myself, there is no way I would come to God because I know my heart is twisted and wicked and bent towards evil and all these things. But, but look how Peter closes this section. Look how he reminds us of the grace that God has extended to us. He says in verse 9 and 10, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so he's talking about this, this rock of offense, this stone of stumbling, all this stuff that, that Jesus is offensive and makes us uh, not want to come to him because he doesn't line up with what we think a deity should be. And then he says, but you, but you are a chosen race. You are a royal people. You are a holy nation. You are a people for God's own special possession. And what does he say that we did in there to deserve that? Like, absolutely nothing. That's the whole point of, of chapters 1 and 2 of 1 Peter. This is actually wrapping up this section. He's going to go into some other commands for how we live in this world that is opposed to Jesus after this in the next few weeks. But right here, he's, he's having this poetic and climactic sentence where he says, look at this beautiful thing that God is doing. This amazing thing called the church, this holy nation, this royal priesthood, all these things are yours in Christ." Not because of what you have done, but because God loved you enough to say you are a chosen race. Think about that. Being chosen, being set apart. God setting his love on you and making you a special people. So, So we see the word race and we think of ethnicity. We think of like skin color. But in the ancient world, when we talked about a race, it had more of a connotation of a family unit. He's saying you have been chosen and you've been made into a family whose unity is stronger than anything else in the world that would divide us. And and that that includes uh, wealth and race and all other kinds of things that the world says should be divisive. I think think of uh, the movie Remember the Titans. Remember that classic sports movie that if you're a guy, you cry every time you watch it because it's so beautiful and powerful. Uh, There's a scene at the end where one of the the white players and and one of the African-American players, they've been fighting in the beginning of the movie, but but they become really good friends at the end. The white guy is in the hospital and the African-American guy comes to visit him and the nurse says, sorry, this is for family only. And the white guy says, are you blind? Don't you see the family resemblance? That's my brother right there. And it's this awesome, like, powerful joke moment of just showing their unity. But that's the picture of who we are in Christ. 
That's what we have been made, to, made into in Christ. The world would look at us and say, you guys aren't family. Like, there's nothing similar about you. You vote Republican and you vote Democrat. You're rich and you're poor. You're, you're black and you're white. You, you are uh, popular and, and you are not popular. All these things that the world says are divisive, but in Christ, he says, we have all been chosen and made into the same family unit because of what God's grace has set on us. We're not just, the, we're not just a chosen race. We're also a royal priesthood. And so what that means is we have access to the king. So the priest represents God to the people and the people to God. And he's saying that in Christ, we are all equally have access to the throne room where the king of the universe sits. He says that we are also, we're a holy nation. And so, okay, holy means to be set apart, to be distinct. But then a nation is a group of people whose highest allegiance belongs to the same entity. So if you think about like the sports analogy, there's, you know, there's the Red Sox nation or the Raider nation. There's all these sports teams that people have like these fan bases built around. And what they're saying is my allegiance belongs to this team. But what, what Peter is saying is that in Christ, you are a holy nation, which means your highest allegiance belongs to Jesus and him alone. That's why that heresy of Christian nationalism is so destructive because it takes your highest allegiance that belongs to Jesus and it is corrupting it by saying that a political power can have your allegiance. Like we can, we can have uh, uh, loyalty to different sports teams or uh, physical nations or things like that, but our holy nation that we belong to is the people of God and that can only be first place. If, if anything but Jesus is in first place, then it means we have not been living out our identity in Christ. And the last thing he says here is because you are a people for God's own possession. And this, this word possession is super significant. It means it's the, a king's special storeroom of treasures. There's like the nation's wealth that the king represents. And then there's his own private closet that he keeps the things he really values locked up in and protected in. And what, what Peter is saying is that to God, we are his special possession. If he had a storeroom full of the most things that he valued the most, you and I would be there because of what Jesus has done for us. And because of that, because we're those four things, he says, now your job description is this. You exist to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Think, think about when you're at the, the party, you know, the, the cocktail party where you're, inter- you're meeting people for the first time, you're trying to mingle. What's always the first question that you always get asked, right? What do you do? Right, that's always the question that everyone wants. Like it's the icebreaker, it's to get to know you. Next time you're asked that at a party, this is the answer that you should have. What do you do? I proclaim the excellencies of him who called me out of darkness into his marvelous light. That, that, that is the most important purpose you could have for your life. The reason we ask each other, what do you do, is we're trying to say, what are you living for? Where, where, where does the thing that you ba- uh, base your significance in? And too many of us, we, we, our temp- first temptation is to say our job or our family or something like that. What Peter is doing is reorienting us and saying, if you're a chosen race, if you're a royal priesthood, if you're a holy nation, if you're a God's special possession, here's the most significant thing about you. You proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That is our job, that description. That's the, the chief end of man, as the Westminster Confession says. Our chief ex- reason we exist is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Okay, so that's who we are, that's what we do. But then there's this question of how did we become those things? This amazing title of a chosen race, royal priesthood, all those things. That is such an amazingly beautiful gift that God has given us. How did we become that in the first place? How do you get in on this in the first place? And that's how he wraps up with verse 10. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, 
but now you have received mercy. And all of your Bibles will have a footnote in there that says Peter is not writing those words himself. He's actually quoting an Old Testament story from the book of Hosea. So the reason we read that passage wasn't just so Tristan had to say whoredom three times as he was doing the reading. This is why we read that passage. Look at Hosea chapter 2, verse 23 and following. And God says, And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, You are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. So that, that, that quote there is saying that Hosea and Gomer, Gomer had three children, two of whom are probably out of wedlock. And God gave them these names saying, you're going to be punished. You're not my people. I won't have mercy on you. But then because of nothing that Gomer did, because of nothing Israel did, God says, but I'm going to extend mercy to no mercy. And I'm going to make my people the person whose name is not my people. And listen to how God tells Hosea to go about that. In chapter three, verse one. And the Lord said to Hosea, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so I will also be to you. For the children of Israel dwell, shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall dwell and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. And what Peter is doing is saying is we live in those latter days, in the days where even though we have been wandering in sin, even though we have whored ourselves out after other gods, God loves us enough to come and buy us back to purchase our freedom and to make us his own special possession again. I mean, think about the image of this. Hosea's wife, Gomer, had gotten so involved in this ring that she was actually a slave to her pimp. He had to go buy his own wife back to purchase her freedom in order to make her his again. And that's the same kind of love that God has for us, that even when we're in bondage to sin, when we have sold ourselves out to the world and all these idols, God loves us enough to come buy back our freedom. And what, what uh, biblical scholars will tell you is if you do the math, a lethic and a homer of barley works out to be about 15 shekels of silver. And you put this together, 30 shekels of silver is obviously a prophetic picture pointing us towards the time that our freedom would be purchased when Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver to Judas. And that same kind of cost of Jesus giving his life to buy back our freedom is the love that God has for us. That's the only way that we could be the holy nation, a royal priesthood, a chosen people, a people of God's own special possession. That's how much God loved us. He was willing to give his life for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this amazing passage in Peter that reminds us of who we are because of your son's death for us. God, we thank you for the, the way that this book points us to our future inheritance and that because Jesus rose from the dead, we have hope. Uh, we know that the best is yet to come, uh, that one day you will return and there will be no more uh, sorrow, sickness, or death. And uh, in the meantime, God, I ask that you would continue to build us into that holy church that you've called us to be, that as living stones, we would be united with one another, we would be holy and set apart, that we would put off the sins that can entangle our hearts and destroy the picture of the gospel culture that you've called us to. God, help us to live in faithfulness and fidelity to you as we await the return of your son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.
All right. Well, uh, if this is the first time that you're here, we're so glad that you're worshiping with us. The reason we sit around tables is so after we study a passage of Scripture like this, we can turn to our tables and we can process what God is showing us through his word. Uh, so I have some discussion questions to get us started. And just know that anything you share at your table, you're going to be loved well. Uh, no one will look down on you for uh, sharing. But at the same time, uh, you're free to, to share as much or as little as you would like. Uh, the first question is, how have you tasted that the Lord is good? And just share some stories. What has it been like to experience the goodness of Jesus? And how, how has that happened? Uh, what aspects of Jesus in his gospel does, you, does our society stumble over? How does the real Jesus challenge your own ideas of who you would want him to be? And lastly, what aspects of verses 9 and 10 stand out to you the most and why? And how will that impact you as you live out this week? So let's do that for about uh, 8 to 10 minutes, and then we'll end with a time of worship. I hope your discussions went well. Um, I, I love the fact that we get to do this together as a church family to process what God is showing us because uh, the, the, the truth of God's word is unchanging and, and unending. Uh, the ability to apply God's word to our lives is something that the Holy Spirit does as uniquely as there are unique persons in here. And so being able to compare notes about how we've tasted God's goodness or how, how we see a society viewing Jesus as a stumbling block, those things are where each other's perspective is such a valuable thing to have. So I'm, I'm really grateful that uh, we're all willing to share what God's doing in us and through us as we process this. So uh, what we're going to do now is we end every service with a time of worship. Uh, we want to encounter God's word and not walk away just thinking, oh, that was nice. We want to encounter God's word and leave changed. And, and when we encounter God's word and our change, the response is this heart of worship that, that gives uh, praise to God, that declares that he's the one who's worthy. And so we worship through singing. That's why we have songs that we'll do here in a second. We worship through the giving of our tithes and our offerings where we, we give back to him because he has given everything for us. Uh, we worship through prayer. If there's anything you would like prayer for, I'll be in the back corner. I'd love to pray for you. Uh, and we also worship through communion. And so like I said, the communion is this weekly reminder that we get to taste just how good God really is. We, we, we get to experience his love in a completely unique way that we can't with any other sacrament or, or means of grace that we encounter. And so, so as you think about this call to live holy lives, to set your hope on Jesus, to, to love one another earnestly, to, to take off these sins that entangle our hearts, sometimes it, it, our, our tendency is to view those as things we have to do. And if we don't do them, we're really going to mess things up for people around us. But what communion is every week is this reminder that, that we are called to live that way. Yes, that, that is our response to what Jesus has done. But even when we stumble, even when we fail, even when we fall short, the grace of Jesus is unending and it never changes and it never stops. And so just as there is always going to be a communion every week when we come back to the table, there is always that grace that is there from Jesus that says, no matter how you have fallen short this week, his love is enough, his grace is enough, the sacrifice of his son in our place is enough. And because of that, no matter how we destroy community with our sins, no matter how we stumble and fall, God will always love us because his son has paid the penalty for those exact sins. So listen to how Peter describes the cross here in a few verses below what we just read. Verse 22, he says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 
For you were all straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. It doesn't matter how many times we have fallen this week. What matters is that Jesus took all of those failures on himself. Even though he had committed no sins or failures of his own, he died in our place for our sin and rose again three days later. So if you're able, would you join me in standing? And I will pray over these elements as we come to the table. Uh, Just as a reminder, we serve open communion, which means if you have trusted Jesus as your Savior, we invite you to come to one of these tables. There's a gluten-free option. Uh, If you have not trusted Jesus as your Savior, then we would ask you to abstain from the elements, uh, not because they're magical or anything like that, but because you can't proclaim the grace until you've actually experienced it yourself. And so I would love to pray with you this morning as you uh, come to Jesus for the first time, perhaps, and ask him to save you from your sins. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for this morning. We're so grateful for these reminders of your love for us and these reminders of the way that you have changed us from orphans and aliens into your sons and daughters and members of your kingdom. So may we uh, drink deep of your love now. May we sing your praises with clarity and joy now. May we encourage one another with the grace that we have been shown. It's in your name we pray.